Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 17th of March with me, Ian Welsh. Recently, I caught up with Niels Viard, a regular guest in the podcast and founder of Satelligence. We talked about some of the approaches he's seeing for companies as they grapple with taking a due diligence approach to supply chain management and some of the potential consequences. And a few days ago, I spoke with Megan Paisy, Head of Knowledge and Learning at the International Cocoa Initiative, about the success of a cash transfer programme for cocoa farmers in Ghana. Plus, we have an update on the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference coming up next month from Innovation Forum's Hannah Homari. First, though, is some sustainable business news. Carbon insetting has emerged as a key tool in the Getting to Net Zero box, and the international platform for insetting has launched a new practical guide that has consolidated over a decade's worth of experience from corporate members, including Kering, Chanel and H&M. Insetting involves the creation of carbon removals and emissions reductions in supply chains, primarily through nature-based solutions such as agroforestry, reforestation, regenerative agriculture and other activity, including clean energy projects that reduce pressure on natural resources. The new guide is designed to provide land-dependent companies with tools to help take effective action against climate change and nature loss in their value chains and transform operations to support healthy ecosystems and resilient growing communities to secure raw material supply. It highlights a number of examples of how to scale insetting as a strategic corporate practice. The Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosure has launched the first version of its framework for companies designed to help them report on nature-related risk. The task force was launched in 2020 to build on the work of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, focusing on ensuring that nature-related risks and opportunities are effectively understood and communicated by companies to the financial community. The beta version framework, which will be developed and updated over the coming 18 months, consists of three main components. Firstly, it summarises nature-based risks, concepts and definitions for companies and their stakeholders. Secondly, it has a series of disclosure recommendations that align with the Climate Disclosures Task Force reporting framework. And thirdly, it has guidance as to how to incorporate nature into company risk management processes. The task force is made up of 34 senior figures from companies, financial institutions and market intermediaries from around the world, with a combined market capitalisation of more than $3.1 trillion across 180 countries. The initial framework is designed to provoke dialogue across market participants about how best to assess and respond to nature-related risks ahead of a release of a final recommendations in September 2023. Giving a taste of what might be to come for some companies with significant fossil fuel exposure, the directors of energy giant Shell are being sued by activist shareholders for failing to appropriately prepare the company for a transition to net zero. Environmental law charity Client Earth has raised an action claiming that Shell's directors are personally liable for implementing strategy that's in line with the Paris Climate Agreement, which is a breach, Client Earth contends, of their duties under the UK's Companies Act. The action is the first of its kind and is based on, Client Earth says, the company's best interests if its directors have not properly taken into account the risks of climate change to the business. This spring, the Innovation Forum event series will include forums on business and climate action, responsible supply chains and ethical trade, and the future of food. All details of who is participating and how to register for tickets is available on the Innovation Forum website. Coming up from the 26th to 28th of April is this year's Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference. To find out all the latest about the event, earlier this week I caught up with Innovation Forum's Hannah Homari. Welcome back to the podcast, Hannah. Thanks, Ian. How's the Apparel and Textiles Conference coming together? Yeah, really well, thanks. We had our pre-conference workshop last week and that was focused on climate action in the apparel industry. So we had speakers from Textile Exchange, Capal, 
Mess Holdings, Everlane, Timberland, and more. The workshop was exclusive to attendees of the apparel conference, but all delegates will have access to the recordings in case they missed it. Otherwise, we've been finalizing the last few panel lineups and we now have over 50 speakers confirmed. So I'm really looking forward to hearing from all of them. Yes, me too. And as you say, the recent workshop was really interesting and very engaging. As one of our colleagues said, it was the fastest two hours he'd had that week. It was a very interesting couple of hours and some interesting conversations. Obviously, we've been working on the agenda as we get up to the event. What are the themes emerging as the agenda has been developing? The agenda covers the key themes of net zero strategy. So building on the conversations that took place last week at the workshop, looking at supply chain transformation, hearing from suppliers what they need from brands on consumer engagement and transparency, how brands can scale circularity and drive positive social impact and a lot more full packed agenda. Any notable new panelists or indeed conference sessions that have been brought together in the last few weeks? We've had a number of new speakers come on board recently, so just to name a few, we have Liz Hirschfield, the Senior Vice President of Supply Chain and Sustainability from the J Crew Group, Larray Pepper, the CEO of Textile Exchange, Jade Buddenberg, the Lead of Sustainability and Business Development Recommerce at Zalando, Anant Ahuja, the Head of Organizational Development at Shahi Exports, and Amal Mishra, the Global Commercial Director at Cotton Connect. That's just to name a few. Excellent. Um, What about sessions, though? Any new sessions that have been put together? The opening plenary of the session has now come together really nicely. That will be a panel discussion on if fast fashion has 10 years left, what's next? So we'll hear from leading sustainability professionals across the apparel industry on the business model transformation that's required and what sustainable growth looks like. So here we'll be hearing from J. Crew Group, River Island, Textile Exchange and April. Excellent. I look forward to that for sure. How can listeners get involved, Hannah? We still have delegate passes remaining and we actually have our final early bird discount ending on the 1st of April. So if you register before then, you'll save £50 on your ticket. You can register online on the conference website or you can email me directly at hannah.homari at innovationforum.co.uk. We do offer group booking discounts, so please do get in touch if you'd like to learn more about those. So save £50 on tickets if you're interested this month by the 1st of April. All right, Hannah, well, lots to look forward to, and it's coming up very soon. Thanks very much for all the information you've given us today. All right, thanks, Ian. Legislation in the EU and elsewhere means that companies are having to take a due diligence approach to their supply chains. This brings, of course, a number of challenges. And recently I talked about some of these with Niles Viard, founder and CEO of Satelligence. We're going to talk a bit today about how you're seeing companies in commodity supply chains moving their obligations more towards a due diligence approach to their engagement. So taking what you're, you mentioned in terms of these kind of developments in different commodity supply chains, how are you seeing companies take on the challenges of having a due diligence approach to their supply chain engagement? First, I think that engagement is, we see it increase. It's not only the engagement between, for example, consumer good brands with their suppliers, with the traders and with the growers. But secondly, we see that it's also the financial institutions who might be investing in such consumer good brands who are stepping up their engagement game. That's creating an efficiency issue. What does engagement mean? Engagement means more emails, phone calls, letters, responses being written. So yeah, how to make that more efficient? It's something that we are working on 24-7. 
So yes, that's interesting. You, you mentioned the fact that you're seeing financial institutions stepping up. Has that been just in the past year? I mean, what's been the kind of the change that you've seen? If we say like three years ago, that also happened, but not as much as it is happening now. It was case by case basis. If there was some issue reported in the media, then response followed. But I think that really in last year, Satellians has been working with more and more institutions as well, such as Robeco and Actium and others in the PRI group, that we see that it becomes more proactive. That is the main lesson from last year, I think, from our perspective, which means powering our organizations with information to do this engagement. Where is deforestation really happening and who is involved? What suppliers are involved? This is helped by the fact that more and more supply chain data is becoming available. Thanks to many actors and especially the producers, the suppliers themselves, traceability information has increased a lot. You see the cocoa sector, for example, uh, hundreds and thousands of farms are mapped. But there is also this issue of wrong open data. Not everything is available uh, in public, and that is hampering the engagement process. Uh, So data has to be curated. And this is something that we've seen at Satelligence working together with all the companies and also some of the financial institutions. That is really a focus area to make sure that all the actors use accurate data, data that is not outdated. In some of the media and NGO reports, we've also seen some grievance cases that were actually recycled, that were kind of old grievance cases that have been solved in the past. So there's a lot of unclarity there that we are trying to fix. What is it that these companies that you're now working with, what is it they need to adopt a due diligence approach? What sort of data points are the key ones for them? I think it's very important to realize that verification of deforestation free production is far more complex than seeing just trees fall on a satellite image. That information is one ingredient and it has to be put in context of where farms are, where plantations are. How are those linked to mills or buying stations? What we call traceability to plantations, right? And TTP. Traceability to mills and factories. That's also something that in some of the sectors, uh, a lot of work has already been done. It's by putting all of that together. That's the answer. So it's just complex and, and appreciating that it's complex is perhaps the difficult bit for any company. We've talked a bit about financial institutions. What other shifts do you see in terms of the sorts of companies that are coming to you for help dealing with their supply chains? What we see as a major driver at the moment is, of course, a draft EU regulation, deforestation-free imports. And there we are a bit concerned with the current setup because in the proposal right now, it is proposed to be differentiating the due diligence requirements depending on the risk profile of a country. We have just discussed in previous minutes about the efforts that individual companies are doing. If we would move to this high-risk country profile approach, it will be doing more wrong than good. Different rules that might penalize actors in high-risk regions, and that's exactly what we don't want. We need companies to continue making operations in high-risk regions more sustainable, right? I think for the coming year, we already had quite a lot of requests from companies, prospective clients, on how we can help them. We should move away from risk high-risk profile approach to more a company-centered approach. As with remote sensing and, and this contextual supply chain traceability data, we can keep a close eye on it. I don't think we need to have this high-risk country approach. Look in the high-risk areas and see which companies are doing the right thing. Otherwise, we might see the EU just be shifting the problem (laughs) from the high-risk areas to the low-risk areas, where not only the sustainable producers will relocate to low-risk areas, but the bad ones as well. 
putting the low risk first at risk. It's something we don't want. So how much of a risk then do you think is there in a split in commodity supply chains between those that are good for companies with strong commitments and leadership and those that are bad for companies with no commitments? It's a step on from what you were saying about the EU might just shift the problem. But is there a danger in this general split anyway? I think a danger we may see is that there is a split in the political world and the world of practice on the ground in tropical forest countries. That is a main danger. And that's why we think that we should promote and support companies and operators who are in the sustainability transition in those high-risk areas. Interesting to see how this will develop. You mentioned a little while ago just about the problems around accuracy of data. As you said, there's more and more data appearing. But are your concerns now that whilst there's more data appearing, the accuracy of that data is not improving? The tricky thing is more in the concession type of data, like in countries like Indonesia, palm oil concession data. There is some public data, but that might be outdated, which means that if deforestation is detected on old concession data, you'll get a very inefficient and frustrating engagement process, right? So we are working with the suppliers themselves to come up with the right information and with the government agencies That is the critical part of it. One of the issues here is that many companies, not only in Palm, in specific countries, but also in, for example, soy and other areas, they don't want to publish their farm or plantation boundary areas because it's sensitive areas. In some some cases, companies told me they would want to, but there are actually legal issues they would face if they would make it public. Secondly, there can be also issues of competitive nature where companies just don't want to know, let their competitors know what what they're doing. And I've even heard of cases where larger landholders in some countries say that, look, I don't want the whole world to know where I am because I'm afraid of kidnapping or some other negative implications. Those are cases that some people will not realize immediately, but there are reasons why this issue of data sensitivity of source data might be a hurdle towards implementation. One-on-one relationships such as we have and keeping some data private while reporting on outcomes, that might be a solution you will have to work on. What would that look like in practice then? What are the sort of safeguards that you'd have to put in place to keep certain types of data private or outside of the public realm, but at the same time be able to have the transparency that companies want to demonstrate that they are dealing with the deforestation issues in their supply chains? Yeah, for us, it's very important to have the whole process audited and certified, which is also why we have certified our approach by Ernst Young. Also, the work of the likes of Control Union and others in this whole process, uh, we think that is, uh, it's vital to make sure that credibility is maintained and trustworthiness, while not always having to publish all the source data. And this is one area that we have been working actively uh, last year and that I will see a lot of more work also with respect to the EU regulation in the coming year. More general, generally then, what have been the big areas of change that you're seeing in the last year or two? And, and for you guys particularly, what were the new markets and geographies that you're opening up? We've seen quite some effort in the cocoa sector for cooperation on monitoring. We will see more activity there in 2022. The rubber sector is having a lot of new initiative on making sure that commitments are being kept, are made and kept, actually. Then we see a lot of demand for carbon information. 
for scope three, but also for carbon removal programs, supporting smallholders in, for example, coffee and other perennial crops, planting more trees, carbon removal units as alternative income, additional income for farmers, which at the same time is very good for biodiversity and the climate. So yeah, we've seen quite a lot of demand for support, both for the scope three part, as well as the carbon removal unit sales part. There's no doubt that the carbon market has expanded significantly. I mean, the figures saying you know, the size of the carbon market exploded at the end in 2021 and looks like it's going to carry on growing. Is that, do you think, a key growth area for you guys? Because people want to demonstrate and prove carbon sequestration as part of a move towards using the carbon markets to A, help the world decarbonize, but also then providing sources of income for smallholder farmers. Yes, definitely. And what will be most interesting is how can small initiatives scale across the globe? It's kind of the, the search for credible information on increase. If we look at, for example, agroforestry, how to most accurately measure the increase year on year of the trees that are set in. That's kind of a challenging thing, a very exciting thing that we're working on. And I think that more and more local programs will be developed. It has to, because at the moment there's more demand than there is supply. So exciting area. Indeed. And in fact, Innovation Forum, we spoke just recently about agroforestry with Cargill and their cocoa supply chain, how they're developing agroforestry approach in, the, in cocoa. Um, really is a fascinating area. You mentioned rubber just now. How do you characterize the change in the approach of companies and rubber supply chains? That What are they doing now that they weren't doing before? What we see is that the sector as a whole has made quite some commitments, which is a great start. Some of the companies are now also engaging in local conservation projects, in monitoring of their operations, also using satellite information to make sure that they are not clearing high conservation value areas, forests. That is really something which I admire. And we hope to see many more of the companies embrace monitoring, get more insights into traceability. Where are all these uh, smallholder uh, producers? Yeah. It's a fascinating sector. And suddenly we're seeing more and more companies wanting to engage on rubber as well. For 2022 then, what else are you hoping to see? I hope to see more companies embrace supply chain monitoring also in compliance with the EU pending regulations, and also to see more of the carbon scope tree monitoring materialized, as well as the monitoring of carbon removal units, helping smallholder farmers. Certainly exciting time, and it's a very fast-moving area and loads of things happening. I hope we catch up again soon, Niels, to find out what you've been doing at Stelligence. But for now, thanks very much. Thank you. How to enhance cocoa farmer incomes has long been a challenge for brands and NGOs alike. A few days ago, I spoke with the International Cocoa Initiative's Head of Knowledge and Learning, Megan Paisy, about the results of a farmer cash transfer programme in Ghana. Perhaps you could start us off by just giving us a bit of information on what exactly the cash transfer programme was and why it was established. The programme was an innovation project set up really to understand what is the impact of income support on cocoa growing families and if it would be a good means of helping reduce child labour, which is a really common human rights challenge in these areas. What did the programme demonstrate and what are the principal conclusions? The programme in a nutshell showed that cash transfers can reduce child labour, which is really positive, and that we see a reduction of around 20% after six months of cash transfer. 
Obviously definitions are very important here and context is very important. There are some tight definitions around child labour. Perhaps you could just outline the differences between child labour and, for example, children doing some work. It's really important to know that not all work by children is child labour. And in fact, some work, what we call light work, is considered beneficial to children's acquisition of skills and part of their healthy development. However, depending on the age of the child and depending on the type of work that they do, some work can be harmful to their health and to their development. When we're talking about child labour here, we're talking about specifically hazardous child labour. So that's doing tasks that are considered as harmful, according to the legislation in Ghana. So to give you some concrete examples of that, that means things like using sharp tools like machetes. That means being exposed to pesticides and carrying heavy loads, this kinds of thing. And of course, it's very easy to be judgmental around these issues. I mean, I grew up in Scotland and in in Scotland until just a few years ago, there was a regular use of child labour in school holidays to help with potato harvests, for example. It doesn't happen so much now, but it was something that was very much a part of the childhood when I was growing up. Thinking back to the communities in Ghana, why are regular payments more beneficial than a lump sum? So this is a really interesting question, and it's something we thought about quite a lot during the preparation of this innovation project. Before we started designing the cash transfer programme, we looked at all the available evidence of what had been the effect of different types of cash transfer programme in similar contexts, so other rural areas where agriculture is a main livelihood source. We looked also at the design of those different programmes to see what we could learn in order to help us design in a good way the cash transfer programme we were doing. One of the things we saw, which was maybe slightly surprising because in general, cash transfer programmes have all sorts of benefits and have been shown to have all sorts of benefits for children and adults alike. But what we saw is there also can be some unexpected negative consequences, which is that if you are a poor family, you suddenly receive a large amount of money. One of the things that might be good to do with that money is to invest it in your farm or in your business, thinking of the potential long-term benefits that money can give. The problem is, if you make a large investment in a farm, for example, buying a load of crop that needs to be planted, needs land preparation, there's a labour need that comes with that. And if you've just spent the money and invested it on your crop, on your land, then where does that labour come from? When labour is scarce, and when you don't have money to afford adult labour, one of the things that happens is that children end up helping out. So what we saw from a small number of the studies that we reviewed was actually that child labour had increased as a result of the cash transfer programme. Um, So we really wanted to avoid that potential negative effect. Our strategy was to make sure that the payments were spread out, so smaller amounts every month rather than a big amount once every six months, and to really encourage spending on everyday needs on things that could benefit children, so specifically food, education, things like this. And I guess making the regular payments in this scheme is better than paying farmers a better price for their cocoa because again that will only come at a particular time in the season whereas this sort of scheme spreads the payments out. Exactly and that's one of the big challenges in relation to agricultural work in general is that you start to get a lot of money at certain times of the year notably in the harvest season but there are other times of the year where there's very little cash flow and often those times of the year also coincide with other moments where you might need to make some important investments, for example, at the start of the school year to make sure that your kids have uniforms, shoes, books, this kind of thing. So we were really keen to have the cash transfer running during the lean season to make sure that those families did have available income at a time when they needed it most. So what's the particular significance then of the fact that the payments are made direct to farmers? Well, all payments are made somehow directly to farmers one way or another. 
I'd rather frame it as they came independently of the cocoa revenues. So what's interesting about having the payments independent of the cocoa revenue is that it's dependable. It comes at the same time every month. Most importantly, it's not connected to the size of your farm. So we have a big problem in West Africa about farmers not earning what's calculated as a living income for their cocoa. And the reality of this is is that the large majority of farmers don't earn a living income. If you, in order to address that problem, increase the price of cocoa, one of the challenges is that the cocoa farmers that are going to reach that threshold first are the ones with the largest farms, who are already the ones with the most amount of money. And in many cases, cocoa farms are quite small. Cocoa is one of several income sources. So if you're looking at cocoa price alone as the way to increase the income of those farmers, you need to increase that cocoa price by a huge amount in order to benefit those farmers with the smallest plots who have the smallest production. What was interesting about this pilot is that we gave all households money under the same conditions, regardless of the size of their farm, regardless of the size of their production. And the only criteria that mattered were the number of school-aged children. So they got a sum of money for younger children and a sum of money for older children. It was capped at a certain amount, but it meant that even the households with relatively small farms who had cocoa as quite a small part of their overall income benefited in the same way from that. And what was the typical amount then that a farmer would receive per month during the pilot? So on average, it was around $30 a month, which represented a 20% increase in their monthly expenditure. So do you think that such farmer payment schemes should become permanent programmes? If that is the case, how would they best be operated? So we see from the results of this pilot some really promising results, which is that it enabled child labour to reduce even over a very short period of time. You know, six months is not very long, and yet we see quite a significant reduction in hazardous child labour. That certainly suggests that other means of supporting farmer incomes so that they have reliable income to draw on should absolutely be promoted. Are cash transfer programmes like this the only means of doing it? Certainly not. But if it's a possibility for companies to put in place cash transfer programmes, for national authorities to put in place cash transfer programmes, then these efforts should absolutely be supported alongside other efforts to prevent and address child labour. And I guess in these days of mobile phone payments and other smart methods of getting payments direct to farmers, there's much less of a risk of in the past when payments are made at a national level. They took a long time for the cash to filter down to farms perhaps, but now because direct payments are much easier, I guess it's more practical to have this sort of scheme. Yeah, uh, we were really pleasantly surprised in the implementation of this project how successful payments via mobile money were. We had very, very few reports of challenges accessing those payments, and we made sure that all the farmers as part of the scheme had a functioning mobile phone that could receive and was registered to accept mobile money payments. A sort of unintended benefit of the project was that in order to register the households for the mobile money, we needed to make sure that they had their correct official ID registered with the phone and with the mobile money provider, which previously hadn't been the case. So it also allowed us to update the farmer lists with the correct names of all the farmers so that all of that could be processed properly. So that ended up improving inadvertently the registration process of the farmers, which was a benefit, of course, to the cooperatives too. Thinking going forward then, to what extent is there an appetite in the cocoa sector to extend such programmes? I think there's quite a lot of appetite. You've probably seen recent announcements, for example, by Nestle of their programme called the Household Income Accelerator which does something very similar in Cote d'Ivoire. It's already been going for several months and they recently announced plans for a big scale up. 
but that's absolutely using cash payments as an incentive to farmers to do certain behaviours. So that includes promoting good agricultural practices, um, agroforestry, ensuring children are attending school and um, encouraging the establishment of alternative income generating activities as well. That's one example of a very large scale scheme that's already in place. Also in Côte d'Ivoire, there have been some other work with coca companies like Tony's Chocolate Only, also using cash transfers. And there are a couple of studies ongoing to also test cash transfers in other similar contexts. So the momentum is already there. And I think the results of this study are really exciting because they show that it does have the effects that we want it to have, which is not only to increase household resilience, but also to reduce child labour. Do you think that's the way forward then to link cash payments to certain behaviour change? As I understand it, your pilot didn't require that at all. Is that correct? Exactly. So the cash transfer scheme that we piloted in Ghana was unconditional, which means that households didn't have to do anything in particular in order to receive the cash. The key difference between this one and the new scheme announced by Nestle is that it's conditional. And so households have to do certain things in order to have that. We, again, thought about this idea of conditionality when we were doing the design of this program. And we looked at a lot of other cash transfer schemes, including those run by governments um, across the world. In terms of results, we see similar results. So whether you give conditional or unconditional cash transfers, the results are generally positive and they're generally similar in magnitude. You don't necessarily see significantly better results if you impose conditions. Well, it's certainly a fascinating programme and it's great to hear that it's demonstrated the benefits of such cash transfers and helping cocoa farmers on the ground. For now, Megan Pacey, Head of Knowledge and Learning at the International Cocoa Initiative. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Innovation Forum website is the place to go for all the latest analysis and interviews. Look out for the next in our content series, looking at how companies can best take a landscape approach to commodity sourcing, this time focusing on the SourceUp initiative. And don't forget also to take advantage of the £50 discount available now on passes for the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference in April. Everything you need to know about this and all of Innovation Forum's Spring Event series is available online. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye. Mm.